Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and right now my work in progress is Jack and Jill go up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Except the hill is an underground mountain, and the pail of water is a bucket of radioactive waste. Hmm. Okay, I'm Kristen, and right now I'm working on a story about a forest in North Carolina that's haunting artists. I'm Caitlin, and right now I'm working on an Ocean's Eleven meets The Mummy plus lots of magic. I'm Cameron, and right now I'm working on a story that is a Jurassic Park meets Maze Runner nightmare scenario, where my protagonist has to figure out how to stay alive and stay sane long enough to get out. Hi, I'm Tony, and I'm working on, uh, right now I'm calling it Reacher in Space. Ooh. It's a uh, science fiction that sort of has a, reach, a Jack Reacher-like character in it. That sounds cool. Today, we'd like to give a big welcome to our special guest, Tony Daniel, who is a senior editor at Bain Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. He's also an award-winning author, a few of his titles, Guardian of Night, Metaplanetary, Superluminal, Earthling, Warpath, and the two Star Trek original series novels, Devil's Bargain and Savage Trade. He's a co-writer of screenplays for monster movies that appear on the sci-fi and chillier channels, and the founder, writer, and director of theatrical and audio drama group, Automatic Vaudeville, with many appearances on the WBAI radio in New York City. Tell us a little bit about your books or about Bain Books, Tony. Um, well, I'm a senior editor at Bain Books, and I am the editor of a good name, perhaps you know Dave Butler, out there in Utah. Um, I'm his editor on, uh, and him and I, uh, Aaron Michael Ritchie, for instance, uh, just turned in their, their sequel to The Cutting Man. Which came out, um, which came out last month, and this is I'm, I, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm reading through it and giving them notes on that for a final revision. And for instance, uh, who else do I work with? Uh, I about two years ago I acquired a debut novel by Mark Shoemaker, my my good buddy, um, which is called Today I'm Carrie, which I think is one of, a, a great novel. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, acquiring and editing books is what I love to do during the day. And I like to write uh, at night on the weekends. Um, and I worked with all the Bain writers like David Weber uh, a lot. Uh, he's a great guy. He's our main selling author and, and by far our most popular author. John Ringo, who's a, who's a incredible uh, polymath. Um, he's, he's in Larry Korea out there. Um, I was the editor on uh, *Son of the Black Sword*, for instance, his fantasy novel. So, uh, and Eric Flint worked with them, and all those 1632 guys a lot. So, um, that's that's the main tent poles there. <laughs> so, and uh, well, you know, Lois Bujol, but she's um, kind of semi-retired now. 
We just had a podcast with um, Susan R. Matthews. Do you work with her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I work with Susan. I'm her editor. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I've known Susan for many, many years. And I, I, I reacquired her books. And we, I mean, my boss, Tony Weisskopf, uh, decided to reissue them all, all of those great um, jurisdiction, under jurisdiction books. Oh, that's so exciting. I, I loved her books. Um, back in the, uh, back about, I guess, 20 years ago now, um, I used to write um, what's called coverage for the science fiction book club. And so, um, and I, I wrote, I've written hundreds and hundreds of, of publishers weekly reviews and things like that. So Susan's book, when it first came out, uh, came into me and I just, I was just like, wow, this is like the best thing I've read in five years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told, and, and we, we bought it for the book club. I used to write the, the, the summaries and then a recommendation for Ellen Asher and Andy Wheeler who ran the book club mm-hmm. and, uh, back in the, those days. And, um, so they acquired it for the book club. And I think I also wrote the, uh, the PW review on, on that first one. And I gave it a star to review and everything. And I, you know, I've always thought it was that Susan was just a hidden gem because some of the, you know, I don't know, it doesn't sell because it's sometimes convoluted or I don't know what the hell, but she's a wonderful writer. Um, and it so repays sitting down and reading her work. So, so we brought it back out. We brought a new um, one out, two new ones out. And we've, reissued all the old the six old under jurisdiction novels and it's this weird science fiction story that's set in this vast star empire and it's all about this guy who's a torturer um, who works for the empire who slowly realizes he's a bad guy (laughs) he's not a good guy so um he thought he was a good guy but it turns out no he's not and he slowly comes to that realization and uh, over the course of the books and he's he's very effective as a torturer so it's kind of like giving up his life's passion to uh, so it's it's a great series it's a really interesting character and uh, i just you know i'm so glad we, we were able to bring this back yeah Today we're going to discuss character and setting generation. So Tony, it's awesome we have you on because you have such a good background with so many different settings and so many different detailed settings too. Um, So we're hoping to just be able to ask you a few questions if that's all right on this. Does someone want to start with the first question? I actually do. Um, So when I'm writing characters specifically, I tend to discovery write and then I'll go back and, and fix things on my second or third pass and through a manuscript. So how do you mentioned that you take a systematic approach to creating a character? How do you do that? Uh, systematic. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, <laughs> I generally write a character backgrounders and I, I have four questions I'll ask. What is a character? Uh, what's their greatest, uh, what's their greatest desire? What's their greatest, um, fear? what's their greatest unconscious desire, which is often not the same thing as what they think they want. And what is their greatest unconscious fear, which is often not the thing they think they're afraid of. And often what the character arc is, is the character discovering the greatest unconscious desire and greatest unconscious fear and bringing it into their consciousness. And that is the character arc. And that helps them solve the problem of the story in the end, um, that, that, and helps them grow. And that's, that's when, you know, you've got a great character that you've built, I think. 
but you know that's very like esoteric out there you know how it applies to individual characters is is something you do um, empirically as you're writing I never would have thought about it that way that's interesting it's I'll make a little chart like I'll make one of them for one of those things called a graph, right? We used to call them that. <laughs> Pretty sure we still call them graphs. <laughs> We're not that young. <laughs> We're not that young. Yeah. I don't know. It was a long time ago <laughs> since I last took a math class. <laughs> so yeah. with this systematic start to the characters, how then can authors use that to keep their characters consistent throughout the rest of the book? What tips would you give for character consistency? Well, character consistency well you got to imagine your way inside of these people that's how you do it the thing that bothers me the most is when characters all sound like the same person is writing them and you can't tell and i think that in a lot of ways it's the skill of the actor you you think about the motivation you think about who it is you can go back over your backgrounder that you've written out go through the backstory right before you sit down and write a scene with them in there um, for all of them and, uh, think, all right, you know, well, I've got the, them in my head and you, and you act it out and you really should read, if you're doing a dialogue in a scene, you should read that stuff aloud and not, and not let it sit there thinking that you can read it in your head. I think that that can really help to put you in mind of that character. A lot of times I sound like a babbling fool. That's the reason I write in <laughs> private. Um, and I think that that's really helpful to uh, to do that. And it, and it keeps the characters from scene to scene sounding like themselves. Yeah. One of the um, best, in my opinion, pieces of advice that I've received is to go through a scene and remove the dialogue tags. And if you can still tell who is saying what lines without the tags, then it's worked out. And if you can't, you need to revise until you can. That sounds so stressful. High bar, but you know. <laughs> Might as well shoot for it, right? Like that's right. What's stopping you? Well, just imagine it's a play. Um, you know, you don't have character tags in a play. That's um, nevertheless, I would add character tags. Absolutely, <laughs> they they are so, important, <laughs> especially in a finished product. <laughs> so, how would you say characters and setting intersect? Character setting is character. Uh, there's. Setting is determined. Be, all right, remember that a book is not the real world. There is no real world in in a book. Um, a, the setting is a is is a world that the character is experiencing, and you're seeing through their eyes. So it's totally um, it's totally not objective. And so the way that you describe setting should be a reflection of the character as they, as they, you know, it's like you're seeing it through their, you know, like Bob colored glasses, if your character's named Bob. And in that way, you are learning about the character when you see the setting. And so setting is to my mind, a means toward characterization, which is, is I think the great strength of the novel. And the reason you write is because you can get inside somebody's head. Otherwise you make a movie. Um, <laughs> The fact that you can get inside the character's head and everything doesn't have to be a, a visual moment is the great strength of the novel. And setting is an example of how you can use things other than um, exposition to create character. 
So a character is mad, he's going to see the world completely differently than a character who is um, who's in a calm state of mind, and it's going to experience the it's going to affect the way the world is perceived by the reader and by this description um, because it's not everything is subjective in a book I think there's an objective world out there in real life but in a book you you know you're creating this experience of how it, what it's like to be inside this person's head at this moment or that person's head at this moment um, unless you're taking and even if you take like an omniscient viewpoint you're still inside the head of something that's not you know, it's it's God, your idea, it's you, whatever. So it's still subjective. And so character creates setting in a way, it generates setting. Although um, you can't just have character because uh, it gets boring. You need uh, to have the real world to filter through that sort of sieve. Mm -hmm. um, you should always be thinking about how does this person perceive things and how can I describe it in such a way that it is the way that they would perceive it. That's the reason that a lot of times you do action scenes. If you step back and start describing everything that happens, like mechanically, it just stops being believable unless that character is the sort of character who sees things that way. For instance, a lot of times people seem to think that action scenes are so important that you get all the details right, that they suddenly go into omniscient mode, you know, and it, and it shows it takes you out of the book, I think. It takes you out of the story. So setting and character, very related. That's something that I've always wondered about because I want to to walk that balance. Action scenes, as all of these lovely podcasters can tell you, are not my forte. <laughs> um, the blocking breaks down really fast. This is why we have readers, right? Because I really, really want the scene to take place from my character's point of view. And so you end up with like this shaky cam thing going on because you, when you're in the yeah. middle of a fight, like... You can only see a little bit. So what would you say? How do you address that? So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what being a professional is about is like, okay, I'm going to stay in this character's point of view, but I'm going to tell you everything you need in order for you to understand what's going on in this scene. Mm -hmm. um, and there's various ways to do that. For instance, you can describe the setting beforehand so that the reader is then um, say, oh yeah, she's been knocked over there, which I've, you know, read about before that there's a chair in that, that corner. And so that's, that's a, a way you could do it. You can, you know, pre preset the stage so that the action scene can be, uh, imagistic or, or, um, that's one thing you can do. There's, you know, there's a lot of tricks that you can use that they're not tricks. They're just the way writing works so that you can tell a story where it's immediate, your heart is rushing, but at the same time, you know what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what I end up doing in revision. I go back and set the scene first, and then I'm like, yeah. now all this stuff. That's one way to do it. And there's, there's, there's other ways. Um, there's, uh, I, I, just remember that the only thing that the reader will know is what you tell them, and so um, I think it's possible to write a very um, impressionistic scene that you can't necessarily, you don't know where all the lamps are and it still works just fine. As long as you get where the lamp is that hits somebody on the head, I think. Yeah. Or that the light you need that lights up the, um, the secret message or whatever the heck. One example of a book that I recently read that's super impressionistic with all of that is, um, 
this is how you lose the time war, where there's plenty of character detail and the characters, they're two viewpoint characters and they really inform the setting, but the setting also informs them. And anytime there's action happening, you get it in these really impressionistic ways where a lot of times I wasn't sure about specific blocking, but it didn't matter because everything else was right and I was like pulled along through it. So I think that's a really good point. Too much logic ruins stories as far as I'm concerned. Although you do need logic. (laughs) So where to draw that line? (laughs) To find balance. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I also think it varies with the story you're trying to tell. It does. Sometimes you need it. Like David Weber needs a lot of exposition for his stories to work. But other people might not if they're, you know, just running from zombies or some shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we'll go ahead and move on to the next portion of our podcast where we critique an audience submission. A quick review. We try to keep this non-prescriptive, which means we point out um, things we notice, but we don't necessarily try to say how we'd fix them. Yeah, you may say whatever you want. This does not apply to Tony. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, letservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a brief summary of the submission. A girl who has recently manifested mysterious magical powers and her friends are dared into going and looking at the deadly fog that surrounds their city. What are some things we liked? I really like the first line. It says, Thora, I'm going to murder this. Thora Narasus was seven the first time she saw the fog. I thought it just um, gave a good peek at future stakes and it kind of had a fairy tale feel to it, which I enjoyed. I liked that too. I think there's some really interesting promises being made in this chapter. I really like so the the thing about the fog is that the fat the fog doesn't just kill you it uncreates you and there's a really nice part where Thora is talking about how she understood it was a fate worse than death and death was awful she knew that because her nanan had died only a few months ago and that had been the absolute worst day of her life and I think that did a really good job of yeah it tells us a ton about the character but also. I mean, death is an easy outcome, but unmaking fills me with so many questions about what exactly that means, that it was a reason for me to keep reading. So I thought that was really well done. That was an excellent character moment. Well, and also we're in like an obviously kind of religious Mm -hmm. world because there's a chaplain and some other stuff. And so it has it has me asking lots of the right kind of questions for me about what it means to them like death and the fog and the fact that it unmakes you just like Kristen said really interesting world building here too so the fog doesn't get to the people because the empress has imposed a magical barrier around the cities but sometimes the barriers fail and then the fog swoops in and gets the people so already there's tension in the world and I enjoyed that there's one moment that I really like Um, they go and look at the fog and there's Phil and her friend Gilis, or I don't know how to say it, and then the main character, Thora, and each of them does something different. Finn falls down, like, trying to get a closer look at the fog and almost falls in, and Gilis immediately goes and tries to help him, and Thora does nothing. She freezes. So we're in this really tense moment, and we get a good look at everybody. Did you have anything you wanted that you liked, Tony? Yeah, um, I did. 
I, I, the fog was very evocative. I, I find fog extremely scary. And uh, I actually have, have, have written a short story with uh, with fog that was kind of like this. Um, people were um, people were isolated. I like the uh, I both like and didn't like the the logic and the fairy logic and all the magic logic. Um, I like that it's there and that clearly the writers thought it all through. Um, I didn't like the way that he or she um, just delineated it at all. It was, um, I was, I felt like I was getting a little rule book for a while uh, there, but at the same time, it was there, and I knew what the rules were, and that was really cool because a lot of times you read a first chapter and you're like, um, I have no idea what's possible here, and you're waiting for you know, something that you thought was going to happen. And then all of a sudden it turns out, Oh, they can fly. So they're going to get out of this. No problem. Um, and here there was a, a building sense of dread because we were getting the rules. Um, and that was good. That's a good transition point. Um, let's go into that a little bit more. What are some other things that could use a second look in this submission? So I, I also like that we knew kind of a lot of the surrounding stakes because we got a lot of rules for the world, but I felt like the character's voice slipped whenever we got into magic rules exposition. It didn't sound like a seven-year-old was talking anymore. Yeah, they're, they're seven, right? No, that's, the whole thing is like they don't seem that young, and especially when they're doing all the rescue stuff. And I, you know, uh, the, the friend of Thora is holding the other guy, um, I don't know that a seven-year-old could do that. Um, and while she's holding onto a branch or something like that. So I, they felt older. I got the impression that she was seven when she'd first seen the fog, but that this was a, a different time. Did I misread that? I think that this is the first time she ever sees it in this yeah. scene. Oh. She was seven the first, yeah. It, they're seven in this story because okay. this is the first time they've seen the fog. Okay, yeah. And, and actually, I yeah. think that is my biggest point of confusion here was they live so close to the fog and it seemed a little strange that Thora had never seen it before. I, I assumed at first when Phil was like teasing her and when everyone was talking about what their siblings said the fog looked like, my assumption as a reader was Thora is the only of the, one of these friends to have manifested her ability. And everyone asks her what the fog looks like. So I thought the two were linked and that she could see the fog because she had manifested. And so when we get to the part where they finally see it and it's just like something you can just go up and approach, I was really confused. I know. I kept waiting for there to be like guards or for them to be like, but our parents said we couldn't. And there's there, there are literally no barriers between them and the fog except for the actual barrier that they can see through. I can... If I maybe a word of defense in the author, if this really is a wall that goes all the way around their city, having guards all the way around that might be a little impractical. But it depends on. Well, I mean, I can see. I I don't understand why they haven't seen it before. I mean, I can understand sure. if the I, world itself. That, that point I won't contest. Yeah, if there aren't guards, that's fine. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, she's Thora is is expressing you know, the, the cautions that she's, she's had as they get in, like, why, you know, no, what, why isn't there adult to stop me? Um, but it seems like the adults would try to like, yeah. not just caution them, but would just try to breed like a fear of terror, you know, mm -hmm. terror into them to get near this thing. So it'd be in the same way that, you know, 
that we say, you know, make our kids incredibly scared of walking out in the street without looking or, uh, you know, or, or talking to strangers or whatever. Um, there would be a deep, a bit biting sort of cultural uh, theme that they that they know, and they they should feel it and not just think it. You know, Thor should be feeling like I can't do this. This is wrong. Like feel, um, and she's not doing that enough. I don't think. Um, yes, agreed. There's a few other things also that I would say about the story. I don't. We may not want to get to it. Uh, I definitely think that she needs to use her magic in the first chapter to save okay. them. Yes. So, because that would be yeah. the thing that would make me as a reader want to keep going on. But uh, you, you may be going to bring that up. You know, we all agree with you. I, I, I mean, we know that she's manifested, but we have no other clues of what manifesting actually means or what's within the realm of possibility as far as what her magic is. And I think that's something that we definitely need to know. We know yeah. that the the Empress can make giant magical barriers, but other than that, it's nah. <laughs> yeah, and that's what will be cool um, about it, and then differentiate it enough so that you know it's not just another. Mm-hmm. There's a few other things that are there's magic telephony, so we're in a we're in a steampunky kind of magic world, yeah, um, which could be cool. Um, and my, my other main thing is I can't really tell the difference in the dialogue between these characters. Um, they all sound alike. I would really like them to sound a little bit different. Um, also, I'm not sure I would start it. It just, I mean, Phil, he's supposedly this, this pushy, smiley kid that um, is pushing him. Uh, but he doesn't really come across as, as dangerous or... or um, this sort of combination of bad boy that, um, I don't know. I can see the beginnings of character differentiation, but I'd like to see a lot more. Also, I don't know if I would start it here because it takes so long for them to get to anything. Um, even though it's just 10 pages, I still would start closer to the fog. (laughs) So they don't have to like walk through the village and, and everything. So, and I would definitely just cut back on all the rule dropping. It's clear the author knows the rules. So the rules should manifest themselves in what happens and not just be told to us because I'm never going to remember all this crap. <laughs> you know, you can't go, the wall only works one way. You know, it's it just it, make it part of the story and I'll remember it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, cool. That's a good beginning. Good beginning. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading it. I thought it was a really cool premise. I like the fog. Um, I'm interested to find out if the rest of the story is from a seven-year-old perspective because I feel like it must not be, maybe. I'm not sure. I think it's got to be aging up. Yeah, it says the first time she saw it, she was seven. So it could be, but this is all we got, so I don't know. (laughs) Chapter two, uh, the friend has... we get a hint that she is uh, in love with her girlfriend, Gilles, there. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're in the midst of hot sex, and Gilles is actually <laughs> married to her and they're cheating her. Very different wow. genre. Well, you've already written this I whole would, book. I think that's the way to go. <laughs> there we go. There's your prescriptive and then, advice and for then the, the night. Fog comes in and you know, and unmakes everything. That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. The princess is obviously being set up as a future love interest. So, 
Good yeah. That has to be in there somewhere as well. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. You're very welcome. It was great to meet you all and uh, take part in this. And a final thank you. Well, another thank you to our intern, Sarah Doyle, who is truly a goddess among interns. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast. We frequently do challenges where you can win books or first chapter critiques. Or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>